what scares us can threaten our joy. It's just true. When we're scared, it's hard to hang on to our joy. So what is it that scares you? What kind of things scare you? I thought of some examples, things that might, that might scare you. Maybe it's something in the natural world that scares you. I know my wife would be is probably mad at me for even putting these pictures on the screen. Uh, she makes terrible noises when she sees things like this. So there's, maybe for you it's something more like uh, heights or uh, you know, germs or viruses make people anxious. What is it that scares you? I thought of one more, too, about, whoa, man, look at that. It's terrifying. I should be a warning label on some of these. Some, there are things that scare us. And when we're scared, it's harder to hang on to our joy. The Apostle Paul was not a man who scared easily. It seemed like uh, since... Since Paul had his joy set so solidly on something he couldn't lose, it helped him hang on to his joy even when he was scared. The reason our joy goes away when we're scared is because we're scared of losing something dear. Like maybe our lives, that's the heights thing or a snake thing. They, They make us scared Paul had his joy so set on whatever would glorify Christ that even when Paul was arrested, beaten, imprisoned, under the threat of execution, he didn't lose his joy. But it turns out there was one thing, at least one thing, that could at least sort of take the edge off of Paul's joy, that could reduce Paul's joy. To use his word could make his joy incomplete. What could possibly make the Apostle Paul lose his joy or part of his joy when the threat of execution couldn't do it? Well, that's what we're going to read about today. We're going to see that Paul's joy was incomplete when Christians that he knew and loved didn't behave like Christians ought to behave. Especially toward one another. The title Christian that was first used in Antioch as a derogatory term for people who are closely associated with Christ. If you call yourself a Christian, that's who you are supposed to be. Someone who is closely associated with Jesus. So closely associated with Jesus, we begin to act like him. We take on his ethics. That's a Christian. This Christianity thing is a, it's a lifestyle. It's a worldview. We're supposed to be acting like Jesus. Here's the problem, though. Jesus was a lot better at behaving like Jesus than we are. I don't know if you've noticed, but I find that true for me. It's hard to be like Jesus consistently, isn't it? And it's so easy to somehow be convinced that there's 
There's a better way to get joy than whatever way Jesus would react or behave right now. Like there might be some enticing sin that tempts me. And it's so easy for my heart and my brain to go, I, I know what God says about doing or not doing that thing. But my heart or my brain says, I will have more joy if I do. When I'm in a conflict, there are so many ways I can act and react that my heart and my brain tell me, you're going to get your way. It's going to be better. I know what this book says, but in this case, somehow I'll have more joy if I do this my way. It's always wrong. And sometimes it seems so right. But following Jesus always leads to the most joy. Always. Ultimately, that's always true. And Paul's joy, he's going to tell us today, got somewhat sapped. I mean, just temporarily, not irreparably, but sapped nonetheless when Christians he cared about began to try to get their joy in a different way than what Jesus would recommend. We're going to read the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2 this morning. It's about delivering joy. What we're reading today, though, to give you the main idea, came from uh, something we studied last week. We're still talking about this. Paul told, he wrote to his friends in Philippi, only or um, um, just... With this as the main idea of your life, conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're still talking about that. This is what it looks like, part of what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses, they read this way. Paul writes, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit... If there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There's our passage, and we start in verse 1, where Paul gives us a list of awesome stuff that we have if we're Christians. Now, it's easy to take this first verse the wrong way because of this word, if, right there. We usually use the word if when we're not sure about something. Like this past winter, we might have said, if it snows tonight, we won't have school tomorrow. We're not sure, right? That's the way we use if probably most of the time. That's not what kind of sentence this is. Paul's not giving us a list of things that might not be true. He's giving us a list of things that absolutely are true. And since they're true, what he's going to say next should be true. We use if this way in English also. Like we have a track meet this week in Sutherland. And if someone's getting ready to plan their trip, they might say something like this. 
Well, if the track meets in Sutherland, we should leave an hour and 20 minutes before we want to get there. That's an acceptable use of the word if, right? But it doesn't communicate any unsureness, if that's a word. We could, we could translate those, those ifs in this verse with the word since. That's kind of the sense of this word, since. This is a list of fantastic things you absolutely have from God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul says, if or since you have encouragement from Christ and comfort provided by love and fellowship in the Spirit and affection and mercy, I want to look at each of those things briefly. This is stuff we have from God. First, Paul says, if or since there is encouragement in Christ. Your Bible not, might not, your version might not use the word encouragement there. It might use the word consolation, to console. Here's why that's a difficult word to translate. Um, uh, the Greek word is, is, like, is related to the word paraclete. It's like paraclesis or something like that. And it really means to, to come alongside. That's what this means. But it's hard to translate. If there's any come alongsiding in Christ. We don't have an English word for that. And you can come alongside someone for a positive reason, and that positive reason can work its way out differently. You can come alongside someone to encourage them. You can come alongside someone to console them. And that's where we get the different translations of that word. So for us, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how has Jesus, how has God come alongside you through Jesus Christ. Has he? You better believe it. Like, let us count the ways. The whole, next week we're going to talk about the incarnation, Jesus becoming a human being. A great passage. That's probably the number one way God came alongside human beings. God had every right to just remain this this distant, detached deity waiting to judge and condemn all of us sinners down here. But instead, he decided in the person of Jesus Christ to become Emmanuel, God with us. He came alongside of us. He went to the cross to experience every pain and hurt and sin humanity can throw at him. He came alongside us and he paid the penalty our sins deserve so that we can be justified, declared not guilty by the, the God of the universe. He redeemed us. He paid for us. So there is, there is encouragement in Christ because the God of the universe came alongside of us. It's the first awesome thing we get from Christ. The second one is right here. Paul says, if or since there's comfort provided by love. And some of the rest of our English versions put the word consolation or to console someone in there. And that's a, that's a synonym. There's a, there's a Greek word here that means literally to, um, to comfort someone who is mourning. Has God done that for you? Has God comforted you with his love? How so? 
Well, if it's really about mourning, my family experienced that yesterday. We had the funeral for Rachel's stepdad yesterday, and uh, death is an enemy. Uh, it hurts to know we won't see Norm, granddad, anymore on this earth. But God has comforted us by his love because Norm knew Christ. And so Norm not only is in a better place, he's with Jesus, and we will be where he is one day. That is comfort provided by the love of God. That's one way God comforts us with his love. Here's another. What is the foundation of God's love for you? If God loves you, why does God love you? Does God love you because you're so awesome and so lovable? No, the the foundation of God's love for you is not your goodness, your behavior. It's Jesus' goodness and Jesus' behavior. There is one way by which human beings can be loved by God, and that's approaching God by the way He loved us first, through the cross of Christ. And if you're a believer in Jesus, if you believe He went there instead of you, He was being treated by God the way you deserve to be treated by God, but He took that instead. If that's true about you, God did that for you when you were at your worst. He did that for me when I was at my worst, which means when I blow it again, when I sin some more, what caused God to love me has not changed. It's so easy to believe. God, there's no way God's got to be done with me now. I've blown it again. Listen, if that was true, God never would have loved you to begin with. Your goodness didn't make him love you. Your lack of goodness didn't make him not love you. And that's still true. What made God love you is Jesus' goodness, his perfection, his sacrifice, and those things haven't changed And so here's the comfort provided by God's love. Oh, sinner, God loves you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God loves you. He still loves you. You still look like Jesus Christ to him. And man is their comfort provided by the way God loves loves us because we tend to love one another based on performance what you've done for me lately all of that stuff that's not how God loves so there's comfort provided by the way God can still love me even now we could go around the room and say how how has God encouraged you through Christ how has God loved you what comfort do you get from God's love we better move on. Paul says there's fellowship in the Spirit. This is another awesome thing we get as Christians. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 that all of us, when we first believed, Paul said we were baptized, we were all baptized into one body by the Holy Spirit. 
And that body is the church, the body of Christ, Paul's nickname for the church. So when we were saved, the Holy Spirit took you from where you were and threw you into the church, like dunked you into the church. That's fellowship brought about by the Holy Spirit. When we become Christians, it's an amazing thing. Anywhere in the world you go to, if you can find other Christians, you have found people you have an incredible amount in common with. I remember when I went to Kazakhstan with Dennis. We went to this little house church and this meeting of house churches. Uh, and it, in some ways it felt like family. Couldn't understand a word they were saying, most of them. But they loved the same Lord that we loved. And they, they wanted to worship him and please him. And, and as we were family. We have fellowship provided by the Spirit. Another way we get fellowship in the Spirit is when we believe in Jesus Christ, we're taken from a position of being God's enemy to being God's friend. Genesis says, Abraham, believe God. And that faith, God took Abraham's faith and credited it to him as if it were a lifetime of perfect righteousness. And we're saved the same way. And then James says this about that. And Abraham, when he was, his faith was credited as, as righteousness, was called God's friend. And Paul went to great lengths in Romans to explain it. We are saved the same way Abraham was saved. When we become Christians believe in Jesus. We're not God's enemy anymore. We have fellowship with the God of the universe. It's incredible. We're not equals. We're not necessarily buddies. But we're friends. We have friends in high places. Fourth and finally, we have affection and mercy. Your Bible might uh, translate these two synonyms um, Affection, tenderness, compassion, mercy, sympathy. Do we get those things from God through Christ? We do. You want to you hear a, a miracle? The God of the universe who's never done one thing wrong and who is the judge of all people who will ever do anything wrong can look on us through faith in Christ and the feelings he can have for us our affection, tenderness, mercy, compassion, sympathy. When we deserve judgment and wrath and alienation. Are those good things that we get from God? Is anybody glad they have those things from God instead of maybe what we deserve from God? Does that seem like a good deal? It's a very good deal. We get from God encouragement, comfort. He comes alongside us. He consoles us in our grief because of his love. He has fellowship with us. He gives us fellowship with other Christians. He treats us tenderly with affection, mercy, compassion, sympathy. We should be very grateful we have those things from God. Now, if we enjoy getting those things from God... Paul's setting us up. Paul's saying, that's the, just the first part of his thought. If it's great to get this stuff from God, that stuff we just talked about, then, Paul says, complete my joy and you be like that. 
You be of the same mind. You have that same kind of love. You be united in spirit and have one purpose. God is the author of all of this stuff, ultimately. James said every good thing comes from God, right? Paul said of God in 2 Corinthians that you are the God of all comfort, right? Anytime you've ever felt real comfort, real encouragement, real compassion, ultimately that came from God. But guess who God uses as his delivery service, his divine delivery service to deliver those good gifts? They come from him, but guess who normally brings them? That's us. People. Now, there are plenty of times where God, alone with my, in my quiet time in the Word, where he can make me feel these things, but God delivers this stuff through people. See, it turns out this verse one stuff is not just the stuff God is supposed to be about giving to Christians. Paul says Christians are supposed to be about giving that stuff to Christians. We're supposed to be Christians, closely associated with Christ. We're supposed to be followers of him, becoming like him. And the closer we get to God, the more we will deliver this kind of stuff to others, especially those in the body of Christ. You know, somehow, and I don't know how this happened, but sometimes our branch of Christianity, we, it's really easy for us to get stuck um, as if our goal is to be the one with the most information, the one with all the answers, who knows the most, That's, you know that's wrong, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't want to have good information about God. That's what we're doing right now. We should, and we should mine the Scriptures for good information. But the information that we want to know is just to put us on the right track toward the right goals. Remember the story, Jesus telling the story, the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house on the Saying the foolish man, he just didn't know the, the word of the Lord. But the wise man is the one that had all the answers. He's the one who had the information and did it. Being the smartest guy in the room is never the goal. Being the one who actually will do what the information says is the goal. This is the first little hint of a problem in Philippi. Paul never takes the Philippians to task for bad information, bad theology, bad eschatology, or any of the other ologies. But he does say, man, the way you guys are treating one another maybe is taking the edge off my joy a little bit. My joy is incomplete because even though... I can rejoice in being arrested, being imprisoned, being shipped off, being shipwrecked, 
being bitten by a poisonous snake, being shipped off again, being imprisoned some more, being under the threat of execution. Paul says, I rejoice in all that because I can see how that's glorifying God. There's an audience that's receiving the gospel that never would have. So Paul, none of the stuff that's happened to Paul saps his joy. But something he hears about the church he loves so much in Philippi is like, They're not encouraging one another. They're not comforting one another. They're not coming alongside one another. They're not consoling one another. They want all that stuff from God. They don't know God gave them to one another to give that stuff to one another. Paul says, it's like my joy's out of whack. I've got plenty of joy from what God's doing toward unbelievers. But church, make make my joy complete. Now, let me ask you a question. Think about this. If you are going to be the kind of person that you're going to see all this great stuff that you want to consistently, consistently deliver joy, you want to be an encourager, someone who comforts some people who are hurting, you want to be the one who comes alongside another Christian. You want to be a console or somebody who has fellowship with. You want to be tender, affectionate, merciful, compassionate, sympathetic, consistently toward other people. What are you going to need? You know what you're going to need? Humility is what you're going to need. That's why Paul says next what he says next. Humility is like the, the, the power that enables us to be a joy deliverer instead of just wanting to be a joy receiver. Easiest way to live in the world is decide what it is you want and then spend your time looking and keeping score as to whether or not you are getting what you want. That is the most natural, normal way to live. Here's my wants, here's my needs. Did I get that today? Yes or no? Then who do I be mad at? That's the most normal way to live. What do I want out of life? Well, then go drive after it. Get fulfill your dreams. Get your needs met. There's another way to live. It's called Christianity. Like it is. This is the lifestyle that you have signed up for. Paul says, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not about your own interests only, but about the interests of others as well. If if we want to be joy deliverers, I've explained this before, but it's so true. If, you know, like if, our all, if everybody's here in church and all of us are just looking around at how much of these things I am getting from other people, we're in deficit spending. Right? If we all want to receive more of that than we give, I'm not doing that until I... We do this in our marriages. Right? I, well, I, once he starts, once she starts, then maybe I'll. We're in deficit spending. We're supposed to be following Christ. 
Come back next week and we'll look at what he did. He went there when he deserved to be way up there to serve others. It's humility. He came alongside. He encouraged. He loved. And the, more, the closer I get to the Lord Jesus, I don't just learn more information. He will shape me into a joy deliverer. But what gets in the way of that is my pride. What gets in the way of that is my pride. What gets in the way of that is I am motivated by selfish ambition. We don't have to learn this. It's completely natural. Uh, there used to be, uh, long ago, in this church, a kindergartner who uh, his teacher called him up and, said, and, and, and explained to him that he wasn't doing his work. And you, you have got to do your work. And he chuckled and he looked at his teacher. I don't remember which one it was, but he said, this is so-and-so. I want to do what I want to do. Like, don't you get it? Like, that's who we are. But that's the natural state of human beings. I want what I want. Paul says, instead of being motivated by what I want, or, next one, vanity. Uh, your Bible might say empty conceit or something like that. I like the old King James here. It uses the very old school word, vainglory. We don't use that word anymore. It's a great word. You know what vainglory is? Exactly what it sounds like. There are ways to get glory, attention, uh, praise that are vain and empty and worthless. And it is so easy to live my life motivated by vain glory. The stuff I want that's going to impress other people, it's going to feel so good, it's going to wind up being ultimately empty. Paul says, there's another way. Don't be motivated by what I want, by vain glory. Instead, humility. What's it mean to be humble? What's humility? It's very often misunderstood. It's a hard thing to define, really. Humility is not thinking you are worse than everyone else. In fact, if you tend to think, right, nobody, nobody loves me, I'm useless, uh, nobody could possibly love me, uh, and I think I'll go eat worms, right? That's, I don't want to make light of that because it's very real for a lot of us. I know. That's not humility. Thinking you are worse than everyone else is not humility. You need to go back and read verse 1. Because what, you know what you have in Christ, O Christian? You have encouragement, comfort. God of the universe comes alongside you. He consoles you. He has fellowship with you and has given you fellowship with others. He's tender and affectionate and merciful and compassionate and sympathetic toward you. When I think I am the worst and I'm the lowest, I'm wrong. That's a special kind of pride. It's a special, because pride is basically self-focus. 
Here's humility. Best I can define it. Humility is two things, having an accurate view of oneself and then thinking of the interests of others ahead of your own interests. That's humility. What do those two things mean? How do I have an accurate view of myself? I need to see Matt Maxwell the way God sees Matt Maxwell, which means I'm not the worst. God said I am his masterpiece. God said, you are his masterpiece if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He's created you for good works. He's got great stuff for you to do. And when I get stuck, oh, no, I can't do anything. Nobody wants me and I get it. That is my pride getting in the way of the works God wants me to do. Having an accurate view of myself means I have to have an accurate view of my mistakes and my faults and my sin. If I spend more time seeing and focusing on the mistakes of others and the mistakes of me, that's my pride. I have to see my mistakes, my sins, how I hurt others. Having an accurate view of myself means understanding all I have and all I am ultimately comes from God. I don't want to get stuck in that thing where I collect a whole bunch of God's stuff and try to impress other people with God's stuff. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I ha- all I have, all I am are from His. Yeah, but Pastor Matt, I start out with nothing. I worked very hard. I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. I would say, where'd you get the bootstraps? Where'd you get the work ethic? And who said you were going to be born in a country where, this, where that was even possible? The God of this universe. All we have, all we are, or His. That's having an accurate view of ourselves. And then thinking of the interests of others ahead of your own is humility, just because that's the opposite of pride. Pride is self-focus, living out of what I want. Humility is considering what others want. That's what Paul means. Now let's put this back in this verse. Paul said, oh, one last thing. I hesitate to say this because we don't need a lot of help here, but Paul does not say you're supposed to think other people are intrinsically more valuable than, than you are because it's not true. And it's not what Paul says. Some of our versions can make it sound like that's what Paul says, but he doesn't. Paul says, each of you in humility should treat one another like as if they were more important. You should be concerned with others also. It's not that other other people are more valuable than you. We're just supposed to treat them as if that were true. And... Paul doesn't say you, if you ever think about what you want, like if you ever make a to-do list of things you want to get done during the day, oh, that's wrong. Paul doesn't say you should never think of your own interests. Read it again. Paul says, each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others also. Um. We, just, we don't need a lot of reminders to go ahead and think about ourselves because we're pretty good at that part. I know I am. 
Just don't hear Paul incorrectly. So, Paul says, understand the most natural way to live is make a list of what I want in life and spend all of my focus on that. Those can be emotional needs. Those can be goals. Paul says there's a different way. It's the way God has treated us. God was perfectly happy on his own. He didn't need us. But he decided to give us, to come alongside of us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to console us, to have fellowship with us, to treat us tenderly, affectionate, mercifully, compassionate, sympathetic. And I don't know if I've ever felt like I had more in common with the Apostle Paul than studying for this sermon. And I have almost nothing uh, in common with the Apostle Paul, except I think he might have been bald. I heard that somewhere. Here's the part that just like, oh, I, I get this so much. Where he told this church he loved, complete my joy by being like verse one to one another. Can I make this personal for just one second? I know in like three weeks, we will have been here 10 years and I've heard several people ask, hey, what can we, what can we do for you guys? And we want to do something and hey, what would be great? And I've heard there's rumblings and what, do you want to know what you can do for me and for Rachel? You want to make our joy complete like, I don't want to go anywhere. I like it here. Right? I don't need more money. I don't. You want to do something for us? Make a decision today what you are going to do differently that would consistently take yourself out of being motivated by selfish ambition, vanity, and instead, how am I going to consistently be an encourager of other people? How am I going to, what's a step I can take to be a comforter? How can I come alongside regularly someone else? You want to make our joy complete? Figure something out like that. Write us a note and say, I decided I'm going to be this. I want to write this down. I want to give this to you so you can see you're, you're making a difference. That's what I want. I've been asked what I want. That's what I want but I don't want fake notes. Don't write it down. Don't write it down. Unless you mean, I, I want to be a Philippians 2-1 kind of person to other people in our church. That would make our joy complete. I love, I love Christ and his church. I love sharing the gospel with people outside. But I just don't, I don't, and I'm not saying we are, I'm not being accusatory. I just know we could all do better. So there you go. That's what I want for my 10-year anniversary. A church is complete in joy when it's seeking to see the gospel spread outside of its walls and when it is delivering to one another, being like Jesus to one another 
inside. A marriage is complete in joy when we get off of the just, just keeping a score of, of what I'm not getting and we just start, Lord, how, what do you want me to do to be a Philippians 2.1 kind of husband, kind of wife, kind of friend, kind of churchgoer? We should, uh, to do that, we're going to have to get out of our own way. We're going to have to recognize our selfish ambition. We're going to have to recognize our pride. We're going to have to get busy seeking after the best interests of one another. And boy, 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 if we can get good at that, this would be a fantastic place to be a part of. And it is. I love it. I love you all so much. But I don't, I want to, I don't want to just take Philippians 2.1 from God. I want to be his delivery boy and deliver joy to someone else in his name. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we love you so much. We are so grateful that we get to receive from you. You've come alongside us. You lowered yourself to come alongside us to encourage us, to love us, to help us keep going in this thing, to help us know this race is not in vain. You, you treat us with sympathy and compassion and mercy and love, and we're so grateful, and those are so wonderful to have from you. But we want to be your vessels, God. We want to be your delivery service, God. That we don't just take those things, but we give and we pour that out to other people and we go back to you to get refilled, that we have other people in our life pouring into us and that we always have more love to give away than we receive. Thank you that you consistently fill up our tank so that we may deliver and deliver and deliver these things that others might be filled up with Christ and deliver them to someone else. Do that work in us, God. Help us to be of the same mind, spirit. Help us be joy deliverers. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, if you will, in his word, in your prayer life, uh, in your church walk, if you will just turn your eyes upon Jesus. And finally, you, what we get in him is so much greater than everything else. And the things of this world won't seem so attractive. He will begin to make you more and more like his son and show you what real joy feels like. It comes when you deliver joy to his people. Love you guys. See you next week.